Now, last week, we examined and laid out uh, for you uh, the five stages of training and teaching your child. As you know, we, we've kind of held up here in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It's such a powerful verse that leads down so many roads that we just really want to look at it and, and just try to get everything out of it we can. And I told you, I thought it was an excellent time uh, with all of the uh, activities that we have with our kids and, and uh, the kids that are being born and our young kids and everything to really uh, help everybody get on board with where um, the Bible really lays it out. And... Um, so we started it, and we have been moving along now for through this a couple more weeks, and we'll probably uh, finish it up. But last week I told you how that uh, in in your child's growth, growing up physically, that you want to go through five stages of training and teaching your child. And what I did was just take a com compl complicated subject that would be almost impossible to grasp, laying it, looking at all the pieces of it, and just simply broke it down into five sections for you as they grow through life. And I told you that they overlap. Uh, the ages of children vary to what they're up to and all that, so you know that. But I gave you, I gave you two key words. I gave you the aspect to teach, uh, and that is to lay down the rules of life that you, you have for them, and, uh, and then you set a pattern of discipline. And then I talked about the aspect of to train, uh, training is reinforcement of, of the commitment to your child, your children, and what you're teaching them and what you're giving them. In raising up your children, reinforcement is absolutely, incredibly vital. You know, in war, when you have um, battles and you have two opposing armies, when they go up against each other, um, and as the battle goes along, when you put your battle plan together, uh, you'll realize that uh, you never commit all of your troops to any particular battle. If you're a, you know, if you have a, if you're a company which is made up of four platoons and you're going to go into a battle, you'll send in three platoons, you'll keep one company in reserve. If you're in a bigger battle and you're a battalion, a battalion can be anywhere from four to six companies, then you'll keep one battalion back in a reserve and then you'll send everybody else in. That's so at a time in the battle when things need to be shored up, you have reinforcements that you can commit to the battle. And when the enemy sees in the battle that you're bringing in reinforcements, he knows that you're serious on your plan to win because you're going to commit now more troops, and more troops obviously mean more casualties, and he, you're sending a message to him that you want to win this so bad that you're now bringing in the reinforcements to bolster up what you're doing that you make sure that you win. And it leaves no doubt in his mind what he's up against. He's up against a determined army who now has committed their reserves and committed their reinforcements to reinforce the battle from their side. And it's the same way with your child when you teach them and reinforce your teaching. Reinforcement is a vital key. When you start to discipline your child and then through a process of reinforcement, your child knows that you're serious about the battle that, they're, that you're in with them. And when you, you know, when you discipline a child on any level, uh, the whole reason for that discipline is the aspect of, of reinforcement, reinforcing something. You know, just disciplining them and, and giving them what's wrong, what's right, whatever is fine. But if there isn't a reinforcement to show that child that you're really committed to this, 
And this is something that we're going to stay with for a long time. And the parent's job is to find ways to do that. I've told parents before, and it's a simple little thing, you know, I, and I remember it from my days in school, and probably older ones will too, they don't do it anymore. Um, but I told parents when they, uh, over the years that when you have a child that, that is, has a particular issue with something, you know, whatever it may be, that um, I know when I was in school, um, you know, uh, in grade school and in junior high, when, when we screwed up and talked in class or when we clowned around in class, I mean, uh, the, before you went down to the office to meet the, the man, the principal, you know, you, you got a little assignment. And that was, and I remember it well, you know, you had to write out a thousand times, I will not talk in class. I remember that. And uh, that's why I don't talk much anymore. I just, it's still, it's still, but I remember that like it was yesterday. You know what that 1,000 times of writing it out did for me in my talking or goofing around, whatever? It reinforced it. With every time I wrote it, it was reinforcing something that I knew that I had to change in my life and I had to put in the proper perspective. A parent will find, need to find ways to reinforce, to reinforce in their child's life the training uh, that you're giving them and the teaching that you're giving them. And last week I gave you, I gave you uh, five stages of training your child, and, and, I, and I defined them for you. We talked about the discipline stage. We talked about the next stage being the relationship stage, and then moving into a fellowship stage, moving up as they grow into a responsibility stage, and then coming full circle and coming back into the ministry stage, where you, know, you build on each one of these. They overlap, but from birth to adulthood, you bring them full circle with the end result uh, through all of the teaching and the training to establish them in the ministry uh, of what uh, you want them to do. I, I told you before that raising a family and a church family are there are great parallels between the two. And my goal for all of you is to have a process of training that you wind up in ministry. And just like some families, you know, the kids never get there. Not all of you will get there. But that's never, it's always been my goal to try to accomplish that. And you build through a biblical process and a progression, a solid foundation based on clearing or clear, uh, solid biblical principles of the Word of God um, throughout their life. And then you walk your child through those early years. You put those things in their world, help them uh, to make their life like a, on a solid rock, which is Bible doctrine. We talked about insulating them from the things to come. At the same time you're insulating, you're ensuring that no one outside influence will have more control over your child than you do. And that's really what you want. That's really your goal and the key. And as long as you can maintain control of your child and nobody other influence comes into their world and you keep them on track in the training and the teaching, uh, you'll not have uh, many problems. So today, I want to talk to you about being a parent. Uh, I want to talk to you about parenting. And I told you in the last Thursday night that today uh, I want to talk about the six, six types of parents that you're going to find uh, in the world today. And uh, I want to lay out for you something that I have uh, put together over the last 45 plus years in my life. I didn't get this out of a book. didn't get it off the Internet. I didn't hear somebody else preach on it. I simply, for the last 45 years of my life, and this is 100% on the money, on the six kinds of parenting or parent that you're going to find. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is our, 
that is our verse that we're going to build around today. And I want to, I want to talk to you uh, about the six kinds of parents that you're going to find. Will, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on our service this morning for me, please? Father, we sure do appreciate everything you uh, allow us to do. Just an enjoy to come here, Father, and uh, worship you today. And I ask that you use Bob just to speak to our hearts and our minds and open our, our hearts and minds up, Lord, to receive it with readiness and with meekness, Lord. Because these are the things that are going to be able to save our souls and our children's souls, Lord. So let us take it and heed it and pay attention to it. And all these things we ask for your name's sake. Amen. You know, in medicine, when they come out with a, with a new drug or some kind of new medical procedure, most, most generally a new drug, uh, they'll do a trial study on it. Before they ever release it to the public, uh, they'll take maybe four or five years of testing, observation. They'll do clinical studies. Uh, they'll see over a period of time how this drug really works with people. And is it really ready to be put out there? And does it really work or not? They want to know what the side effects are. They want to know what the benefits are and, uh, and all of those things. Well, my business is not drugs, <laughs> uh, nor medical procedures, thank God for that. But my business is people. My business is families, moms and dads and kids. And yet, for almost 50 years now, I've, I've studied parents. I, uh, I've been involved with families, going through their problems, and I wasn't someone who just went through it and forgot about it. I, I, I felt like if God was putting these people in my life, they were coming in not only for me to help them, but for them to help me. So but I began a process of cataloging uh, what I found out to be true in dealing with parents. I watched parents. Uh, I got probably six plus pages in the back of my Bible uh, and probably 10 notebooks at home full of, st of things that I've studied and watching parents. I've written three books on the subject and there's a number of pamphlets back there. And, uh, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen every mistake a parent will make uh, in real time. I've watched them make some of the most disastrous mistakes on the planet. I've watched some that were really good at what they did. And, uh, you know, I, I've, watched, I've worked the problems alongside of moms and dads uh, all of my life. And I found that there's patterns to parenting. Just like there's patterns to kids. Just like everything in the Bible falls into a pattern. And the key is to learn those patterns. And uh, the key to learn and understand uh, how, to, how to study and, and really understand parenting is to get the Bible's concept of what a real parent should be and then use that as your baseline. I talked to you last week how people like to use terms without any reference of contact. Well, that's a great family. That's a great guy. Well, he did a great job. And I always would ask you, ask myself, compared to who? Compared to what? What is your standard by which you're making that statement by to judge it by? And of course, uh, the key to learning and understanding and figuring all out is to understand the Bible concept of what a real biblical Bible-based family, parent, or church should be. You know, years ago, I, I had a kid in my class that uh, he, he went into the FBI and um, he, uh, he, uh, I met him some time later, and he had been assigned to the counterfeit division, which, uh, you know, investigates, uh, you know, fake money and all that. And that always has intrigued me. And I said, man, I said, boy, that's got to be tough. I mean, every guy out there who fakes a $100 bill or a 20 they're all going to be, they're all going to look really good, but they're all going to be different. How in the world do you stay up on studying? You'd have to study a hundred, two hundred different fake bills 
And he says, oh, no, 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 no. He said, that's not the way we do it. And I said, well, I'm intrigued. How do you do it? He says, we don't study all the fake ones. We all know what a real $100 bill looks like. And when you study a real $100 bill and you know what it looks like and what it is and every aspect of it, when you put a fake alongside the real one, fake just stands out like a neon sign. And I thought about that. And, you know, that's true of everything in Christianity. We have a lot of things in Christianity that are portrayed as being biblical and being, being good with, and God in it. But when you put it up against the context of the real thing, the phony just shows right through. And that is so true in churches. It's so true in, in, in parenting. And, uh, you know, and as I looked at this, I, I, uh, I, I, I thought to myself, you know, in parenting as ministry, it's very important to have a concept, one biblical principle that I think that has to come into play at some point in your family. We talked a little bit to this on Thursday night, and I, I told you that biblical principle was the concept of grace and truth. John chapter 1 verse 17 says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You know, in the ministry dealing with people, as in parenting, dealing with your children, you need to understand this great principle of grace and truth. Now, let's talk about truth for a moment. Truth is, is what the Bible says. Truth is, is, is what the Bible lays down, and there's no wiggle room with it. Uh, uh, the Bible is all truth. There's no truth outside the Bible. The Bible, for us, in this church, is our final authority. We believe the Bible above everything else. And everything we do runs through the Bible, not around the Bible. You know, and when you, when you have truth, truth will contain three vital concepts for a church and for a family, which we're talking about here. The first thing truth will be, it will become, it'll become an authority for you. In other words, you're going to have to have an authority in your life. Uh, the second thing that truth will do, truth will demand an accountability and a responsibility. You can't have truth as a final authority and be an authority in your life and then not take responsibility or be accountable for anything in, in your life. You know, we have a, we, and, and those three aspects are the most hated three words in Christianity. They really are. And you would think that would be, you would think that they wouldn't be. You would think that, uh, that God's people, once they have the truth, that the truth would be the impact in their life that it's supposed to be. That's not true today. People like to go to church. People like to, people like to pretend that they're all right with God, and they, they, but they don't want any personal accountability. They don't want any responsibility to anything, and they don't want any authority in their life telling them what they don't want to know. And you'll find, and I, you know, when it comes to the megachurch concept today, the megachurch concept is, is such a haven for people who don't want to have any authority in their life. They can go to church, talk about the church, talk about I was there in church on Sunday, but in a large church, there's no accountability. You show up here and you miss two or three weeks in a row, somebody's going to ask you where you've been. And if you've been sick, you're going to say, I was sick. If, if, if you're someplace that you should not be and your life is beginning to unravel with God, the answer is going to be, well, I wasn't here. How many times? Hey, I missed it the last couple of weeks. You weren't here. Yep. <laughs> How was it getting high? How was it getting drunk? 
You know, there, there's something amiss. And of course, in a big church, you can float between the scenes. Nobody will ever, ever, ever know if you're there or not. You don't have to ever be involved in ministry. Nobody really cares. You're just, you're just there. And in churches today, we want to go to church. We want to put on the Christian scene, but we don't want to be responsible. Uh, we don't want to be accountable, and we don't want to put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. When it all boils down, in churches today, in Christianity today, the hatred for the King James Bible comes down to one thing. It's God's final authority, and men don't want to be under a final authority. Men want to be the authority themselves. In the theological world, and we don't go there very often, but in the theological world, you have a word. It's called dogmatic. Sometimes you hear it used as dogma. And it means to think or what to think. It's a settled opinion. It's a maximum principle that somebody is built in their life and now they stand on. The word is usually used in the context of churches and religions as to what they believe. When do- where dogma, or being dogmatic, where dogma deals with what you think, there's another word that we use all the time called doctrine, which means what we teach. So when you have the dogma, and the do- I'm dogmatic about this, this is what I believe, the doctrine is that what I believe is what I teach. And, uh, you know, churches, Christians, pastors today, we're not dogmatic about anything for the most part. Uh, there's no real, uh, they're not, you know, the real stand on anything in most cases. And uh, this all started around the turn of the century, around 1900s in America, with the beginning of two movements that uh, in time not only destroyed the churches, but it came into the families. And the reason why families aren't dogmatic about anything and have no standard that they stand on is because most of the churches they go to do not. And the first thing that happened, and I, I've, I've talked about this before, so I won't really belabor the point, but the first thing that came into, a, into, into being was a, was, a, was a new thought called neo-evangelicalism. And it starts around 1900, late 1800s. And the purpose of neo-evangelism was to, was to bring Christianity back to an accredited form of thought. It's been called by guys who write books on it a reconstruction of theology. What it really boiled down to is they wanted to take the Bible out of the hand of the common man and put it back into the realm of scholarship, where now they all get along. Uh, there's, they, they, it's a shift from a hard, dogmatic, dogma, Bible, doctrine stand to a soft-shell Bible teaching without any real doctrine. And it's a, it was a counter to the Philadelphian church age. And, uh, you know, it takes the Bible basically from the common man. Salvation was shifted in to become the main thing. The most important thing in a church now is salvation. But that's not true, because the most important thing in Christianity is not salvation. The most important thing in Christianity is truth. And when they didn't have truth, and they just had salvation, as the time went on, the salvation got all watered down. Salvation got lost in all of the things, and now salvation is a feeling. Salvation is an experience. Salvation is, is somebody going to somebody's house and knocking on the door and saying, hey, you need to be saved, or, or going out on the street and talking to somebody, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, they come back and they say, well, I won that person to Christ. They got saved. Let me tell you something. 
If you don't understand some fundamental things about winning somebody to Christ or what it takes to be saved, you're kidding yourself. And I've met people all my life that struggle with their salvation. They struggle with their salvation one way or the other all of their lives. And the reason go back is because some idiot won them to Christ and never did his job the way he should. And that person goes around the rest of their life thinking they're saved, struggling with it, hoping they are, when in actuality, they probably aren't. And that's where we're at today. That's what it does. Now, these churches are non-denominational in nature. And you'll find, uh, you'll find they're called a Christian church, or they're called evangelical churches. They're, they have a generic name. They don't put any denomination on it. And uh, sometimes you'll see the community church, the village church, harvest church, first Bible church, grace church, uh, a community family center church. Uh, it'll have some generic name that sounds very good, but it's detached from anything that would lend itself from any real dogmatic stand. Now, just to move on just one step further, this is why in the world that we live in today, most churches that were once Baptist churches are taking the word Baptist off their name. They're making a shift from a dogmatic stand to a gray mush area where you don't have to stand on anything. And this is what we find ourselves today. The second thing that started around the 1920s or the 1930s was a, uh, a movement called neo-orthodoxy. Now, orthodoxy, uh, you know, orthodoxy means sound in the faith. When we talk about the Jews in America, we, we know that they're probably pretty midline, not really committed Jews. But if you want to find the real, 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 real hardline Jews, you go to New York City or you go to some big city where they have their little, or go to Jerusalem, and you'll find what we call Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews still wear the clothes, wear the hat, cut their hair, wear the beard, and they're at the wailing wall most of the day. And of course, uh, they're, they're sound, and you find that they're, that's what the word Orthodox means. A neo-orthodoxy was a new stand, see, a new teaching. And uh, when they came into being, uh, their, their idea was to change the Bible and change churches to fit our changing society. In other words, the Bible was not a fixed position that the rest of the world came to. The Bible was an evolving document that, that continued to evolve as man and society evolved, and you had, to, you had to bring the Bible along. Instead of what we believe, that the Bible is a fixed truth for any man, any time in history. You want to fix something, you adjust what you believe to the book. Neo-orthodoxy was, we'll adjust the book to what you believe. And that's where it all comes in. Keep up with society. Uh, you'll find that if you go down Raytown, 350 Highway, uh, coming from Nolan Road, up past the fire station, up past the, uh, uh, that little gas station there, and then uh, there's, a, um, uh, there's some storage places right there, and there's a big billboard. And the billboard that says, What church? And it's a question mark. What church would welcome gays, honor women, seek social justice, affirms many ways to God? And the question is, what church would do that? Well, it wasn't the church of Jesus Christ, that's for sure. But that's neo-orthodoxy, see? 
neo-orthodoxy is, anybody can come in. Now, I don't want to be, if you're listening online here or you're here this morning, I don't want you to think if, if a gay guy came in here or a gay woman came in here that they would not be welcome. They could come to church here. There's no problem with that at all. Nobody would go up and, and, uh, and say anything to them. We wouldn't be like the bakery who wouldn't bake their wedding cake. We don't do cakes around here unless Betty wouldn't do it. I don't know about that. But it's a thing where they would be welcome here. Nobody's going to shun them. Nobody's going to walk over and, and ask them to leave. But I must tell you, I will turn in my sermon in Genesis chapter 18 and 19 and we'll go with it from there. But, you know, it's a thing where they say honor women. Now, when they're talking about honor women, we, I, I, I'm all for that. Women are, need to be honored. They need to be cherished, need to be worshipped. I can, I can use some help here, guys. You can get some points right now if you start shooting your mouth off here. And it's a thing where, but they're not talking about that. The Bible says, he that findeth a woman find a good thing. They're not talking about that. They're talking about women pastors, women deacons. See? And, and that's what they're talking about. Seek social justice. Well, that's, that's, that's the, you know, that is the fact that uh, that's everything that's wrong with America. And, uh, you know, they say, we want our rights. We want social justice. I believe in social justice, and I believe we all ought to get our rights. And our right through social justice is that we all have a right to die and go to hell and spend an eternity in the lake of fire. That's your only right you have. Praise God, gum them down and cancel out that if you want it. So I believe in social injustice. I believe. I believe that socially I'm, in a, I'm maladjusted and injusted and God came down and saved me from it. So I'm good. And then the last thing, affirming many ways to God. Uh, I have a sister-in-law who, who is within this group here. She's a neo-Orthodox big time in every one of these things. We've had discussions with her, uh, you know, uh, and uh, over the time, I don't have much anymore, but it's a closed door. But, but uh, I remember her telling me, because we lived in Missouri and we'd go back to Canton. And we were talking about salvation and everything. And they just have a real problem with the blood of Christ. It's like we're a bloody religion or something like that. You know, slaughterhouse religion is what they call it, you know. And so she's telling me, she was telling me, she says, no, Bob, she says, you know, just like you're from Kansas City, there's five or six ways you could get to Canton. You don't have to come one way. And she says, in the same thinking, there's many ways you can get to God. And I, I thought to myself, that is, that is neo-orthodoxy right where it's at today. The fact that there's many aspects and many ways you can get to God. These kinds of churches are Lutheran churches, the Anglican Church, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalians, and, you know, uh, churches of Christ, uh, not the water dog people, but the, the real liberal one. And, you know, their idea is that there's no sin. Every, uh, you know, God's, uh, we're all God's children. And that uh, the, the social gospel is what they preached, and that's why they're so busy uh, seeking social justice, because they're preaching a social gospel. Um, they, they, you know, they have women pastors and they have, you know, women deacons. And if you knew anything about your, your history, you would know that when these two things came along in the turn of the century in the 1920s, the old timers like Bob Jones Sr., J. Frank North, and Billy Sunday, they, 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 they took hard stands against this. They preached against this. This was looked at as the liberalism that was going to destroy, it came in to destroy Bible Christianity. And it did. In fact, back in the 1900s up to the 1940s, it was this very thought that destroyed the Southern Baptist Convention. 
But in 1920s, the Southern Baptist Convention has something like 30 seminaries across America. They're turning out preacher after preacher after preacher. They don't believe the Bible is the Word of God anymore. They believe that the story of Adam and Eve is a fable. They believe that, that Noah's flood wasn't really happened, that it was just a local fable. They have completely destroyed, and it all came back to this. And the end result of both of these movements was to get Christianity to stand for nothing. No doctrine. You're told today that when you get saved, don't become a fanatic. Don't go overboard on the Bible. What they're basically saying, don't be dogmatic. Dogmatic is something that I am focused on, that I believe and stand on. So don't be dogmatic. In essence, no real absolute truth. And this destroyed Christianity. And as it destroyed Christianity, it destroyed the family. And now this is why churches today, uh, like I said, they want to take Baptist off their names. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, uh, in, 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 in history, traditionally, Baptists stood for something. Now, I get it. I get it. There are some of the goofiest people on the planet who claim to be Baptists. I get that. But I'm telling you, wherever you find anything, you're going to find goofy people in it. You are. And I've seen... I've seen all kinds of churches that had Baptist churches, and most of them, when you get there and you see them, you know, they never grow. They always stay small. They never have, they're always in control of people. You know, know, only ones that go to them churches are idiots who are like they are. They don't ever grow. They don't ever, there's nobody would ever go there. They're very legalistic. They're very controlling. And, you know, so I know they're out there. I get it. I get it. And Baptists, for the most part, are idiots today. I totally understand that. I can say that because I am a Baptist. And that's, I'm probably an idiot too, but that's beside the point. But historically, from a historical position, Baptists always have been very dogmatic. They hold the doctrine like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that they should. And in the history of the New Testament church, the development of the biblical line, you will find what is called Baptist distinctives. And those are the things that they were dogmatic about that made the churches strong, that made the family strong. And when a church today leaves the doctrines or the truth, and it's not dogmatic, there's no dogma, then they become part of the world religious style and system of non-biblical churches. They become a neo-evangelical or they become a neo-orthodoxy. And the reason why they do it is because in their minds today, dogmatism, dogmatic, a dogma that you hold will limit you to reach people. And they have taken the doctrine of the Bible and truth, put it over here so the truth of the Word of God won't get in the way of you getting saved. Did you just hear what I just said? They have shifted their churches and taken the dogmatic truth of the Bible. And I'm going to walk up through here in a moment because there's seven distinctives. They've taken it out and put it over here so the truth of the Word of God is what is exact that we should stand on won't get in the way of you getting saved. And this is why I take the position and I'll take it. I've got a little experience under my belt. This is why I think of most guys, people today that come out of that system that claims they're saved and thinks they're saved have never really been saved. How do you get saved without a Bible? That's an excellent question. I don't have time to answer it today, but I'll tell you. How do you get saved without truth? But see, salvation has become the number one thing, and truth is irrelevant anymore. It doesn't matter. 
And of course, you know, when a, when a church today does that, then they fall into that. And, and typically, you know, the, the Baptist distinctives that they, that we're dogmatic about, I mean, you listen to them. You tell me what's wrong with them. The first one was they believed that when you got saved, you got separated from the world. Well, what a novel thought. When you got saved, you became a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things were passed away and all things become new. And now you were separated from the world. In the Bible, it's called sanctification. Sanctification means the moment you got saved, you don't drink anymore. You don't smoke dope anymore. You don't do the things of the world anymore. Now, because you're a new creature, those things are passed away. But we in Christianity, we embrace those things. You got churches in this city that then the pastor will get up and say it's okay for you to social drink. You know what? If that is true, Billy Sunday wasted all of his life preaching on alcoholism. See how we've shifted? It was dogmatic in Billy Sunday's day that booze was out of the pit of hell. Once we got rid of the truth, we brought it into the church, and now it's social drinking. I can't wait to legalize marijuana. And I know some of you are just waiting for it too. <laughs> I've had Christians tell me, when they legalize marijuana, it'll be okay for us to do it. It's all right right now because of the fact that it's illegal. Hey, I want to tell you something. This is the mindset today. When you get rid of truth, when you don't have anything that you're dogmatic about, no dogma, no, nothing that you stand on, then you can do anything. And that's where we're at today. I'll tell you the second thing. The separation of church and state. They realized that, uh, they realized that as a church, uh, we don't have any investments in politics. But yet, the neo-evangelical crowd and the Baptists, they're always doing... I want to tell you something. In all of my years, and I know that somebody's going to come up and say, well, I know one. No, you don't. No, you don't. Not the way I'm talking about in all my 67 years in the, of walking planet Earth and, and looking at it, I have never met a politician any time, whether he was a Democrat or Republican, that was a born-again, Bible-believing child of God that stood for anything. You know why? Because to be a politician, you can't stand dogmatic. You won't get any votes. I mean, you can't, you have to, you have to play both sides. You have to, you can't, you can't get up as a politician and, and speak on homosexuality or lesbianism. You can't, you can't do this. You can't speak out on this. You'll get clobbered. And that's why Christianity and politics never work. Never work. I mean, what? Don't you read your Bible? Don't you know? Don't you understand? That no king ever came from Levi? And no priest ever came from Judah other than David. There are two separate lines in the Bible. One's political, one's spiritual. And they never crossed except one place. And he's the greatest type of Christ in the Bible. And so when you, when you see things like that, and I know, I, I, hate to, I just hate to keep playing dirty and bringing up the Bible. I do. <laughs> but I'm telling you, you know that you got to stay. You, you don't change this world by putting Christians into politics. You know how you change this world? You get some preachers on fire in that pulpit to preach the hell out of their congregation and get them living right, which will affect the people they work with, which will affect the people in the state, will affect the people in the country. And everybody will do what's right. You thinking that you can create and create a better world through politics, you got your dispensations wrong. There'll never be any peace on earth till the Prince of Peace gets here. Then it'll be just fine. But not till then. The third one. 
eternal security of the believer. Now, I'm not saying you've got to know this to be saved. I'm not. I don't, I don't wouldn't say this at all, because if that's the case, then none of us got saved. But at some point in your life, if you're going to understand salvation and what happened to you, that you know you can never lose it, and you'd be surprised that the people run around this planet thinks they can lose their salvation. That's because the idiot that won you to Christ didn't do his job. He just wanted to put you as a notch on his pistol. Well, I had another one saved today, you know. He didn't care where you struggle with. He doesn't have any answers to your struggles. He just wants to claim you as a victory trophy, much like mine up here. You know in that Bible there's 12 doctrines of salvation? 12 doctrines of salvation. You got the doctrine of propitiation. You know what it is? You got the doctrine of propitiation, the doctrine of remission. You got 12 exact dogmatic doctrines, teachings on salvation. I'm not saying you got to know what they are to be saved, but you got to know what they are to understand why you can't lose what you got. The doctrine of expiation. You know what it is? Of course you don't. And that's why people struggle. The fourth Baptist distinctive was two, two ordinances in the church. We saw them last week. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. The fifth one is only two offices in the church. The pastor, sometimes called a bishop, and of course deacons, uh, no women allowed. And you'll find that in First and Second Timothy in Acts chapter 6. Uh, we'll talk about the seventh one was the premillennial return of Christ and the rapture of the New Testament church. Revelation chapter 20, 1 Thessalonians chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. Of course, the seventh one, King James Bible, the infallible word of God. It's always been the seven Baptist distinctives. Those are things that they're dogmatic on. And of course, you preach these things hard, you're not going to win everybody. Now, I've got to say something. This is going to sound strange if you've got later seeing ears. You know that preaching is designed, in some cases, not to get you saved. I mean, God is not willing that any should perish, and you can get saved from preaching. But you realize that there, there was, in the New Testament, when Jesus was here, there were, and he came to win the world, didn't he? You realize there were some people that Jesus never spoke to? You know, there were some people that, when he had an opportunity to lay it out, he never did. And sometimes we get the idea that soul winning is so important that everybody needs to get saved. No, everybody does need to get saved. But hear what I'm saying. Preaching is not just about getting you saved. Preaching you is giving you the truth when you don't want to hear the truth so God can work on your soul that when you stand before him at the great white throne judgment, you can't point your finger and say, I never heard the truth. I wish everybody would get saved, but I know that's not true. It's not true like I wish that everybody here would do what's right with God, but you're not going to. It's like wishing every family would do what's right with their children. But it ain't going to happen. Dogmatic truth is the key. And today, neo-evangelicalism and neo-orthodoxy have taken the doctrine away from the church and destroyed it and in turn the church of Jesus Christ into a non-biblical system where you have no doctrine and it's destroyed the family. So now we have churches that have no dogmatic stand and we have families who have no dogmatic stand. 
We have churches that, uh, the model church in the Bible that, that, that we follow and everything we should do is, is the church in Antioch where they're first called Christians. The basis for a church, any church, being a legitimate New Testament Bible local church will go back to what it believes. It's dogma. Not the name that it has, not how many people you have there, not how many people show up. It goes back to what you believe based on the model church and what they believe. Oh, Mel Sabaka said one time, he, we were at a big church and we went out of there, we were at somebody's wedding and it was packed for people. And it was a huge church and we went out and I said, what do you think of that, Mel? He said, just because you got a crowd don't mean you have a church. Boy, that's no truer words ever spoken. The authority, listen to me, the authority to carry out God's mandate was given to a New Testament Bible-believing local church that held the dogmatic truth of Acts chapter 11, 12, and 13. Now, I know you're wondering how I'm going to get to the six things of parenting. I'm walking away here. I've got to get you to understand this grace and truth concept. We're still talking about truth. Now, last week we baptized, and there were some people in our church that got rebaptized. And they had come to me, and they said, hey, look, I was baptized in this church. Should I get rebaptized? I never tell anybody what to do. That's not my job. My job is not to tell you to do anything. My job is to lay out the biblical options that you have, show you what the Bible says, and then you've got to make your own choice. I am never going to tell somebody, you need to get rebaptized. I'm never going to tell somebody, you're not saved. I'm never going to tell somebody this or that. I am going to, I'm going to show you what the Bible says and let the Holy Spirit of God deal with you. That is the best way to do it. But these people came to me and they were baptized and, and what uh, they would ask me. They would say, hey, I was baptized in this church. Is this church, is this church a New Testament Bible-believing local church? And I would say, no, it's not. It's not based on the fact that they're not dogmatic about anything. They're not because of the fact that they don't follow any truth. They're not the model church based in Acts chapter 11. And they have, they may be a church, they may, I mean, it may be great. You know, here's the church, there's a steeple, open the door and there's all the people. I mean, I get it. But it's, it's more than that. It's more than getting a bunch of people in a pastor in a pulpit. It's what do you stand for? And if you don't stand for the New Testament model church in Acts chapter 11, 12, and 13, then by God's standard, you are not. You're a church, great. You're a congregation, praise Jesus. You've got all those things. But you're not a New Testament local church based on the New Testament. And being such, you don't have the authority to baptize under the New Testament. Maybe you do, but you don't have the authority to do it. The authority goes back to the dogmatic Church at Acts, what they believed. And I know that's not popular today. So truth will be our dogma. And with truth, we have accountability. We have responsibility because it becomes our authority. And we are dogmatic about it. And in churches and in families, it's vitally important. Now, grace, grace and truth. I just switched them. Grace. The Bible says that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace, on the other hand, will be how you use the truth that God has given you. Truth can be brutal. Grace will soften the blow. A balance of grace and truth in dealing with people and dealing with your children in a family. 
And I'm using the parallels between a church and a family so you can see an illustration to better understand it. Most parents, most churches, fall into two distinct categories. One, they'll have, they'll have truth, but they'll have no grace. I've known a lot of churches that they, they believe the King James Bible. But they have no, and, well, and they, they stand for the truth, but they have no grace. It's all black and white to them. It's a hard line right down the line. If somebody came into their church that they didn't think were dressed the right way, they'd ask them to leave. Or they'd all get in a corner and talk about it, which doesn't take much because most of these churches only run five or six people. So they'd be just over in a corner. Somebody couldn't miss them. They never grow. They never go anywhere. But they got the truth, see? But they got no grace. They beat up their people. They put their people under unrealistic situations. But they got the truth. We believe the King James Bible. No, you may believe it, but you have you, you only got half of it. You have the truth, but you have no ability to use that truth to work with people and help people. Your truth hurts people. Now, I, I, I appreciate Chris Piscano back here. He heads up our street preaching ministry. And I've told Chris this before. I've never been a fan of street preachers. Never have. I've never had a street preaching ministry in my church. Never wanted one until Chris came back to be with me. And I baptized you. How old were you when I baptized you? Seven and a half. And I baptized him many, many years ago. He was out and around, around place, place. Came, God brought him back here, and and streets. He's got a heart, and and I got to say, he does it right. Uh, he does it right. I appreciate what he does. I appreciate how he does it. He's got a heart for it. He's a he's a bona fide New Testament street preacher. He really is. But I I had no use for him, no use for him because they they have truth, but they have no grace. And they're in a world where people who already have a bad connotation of Christianity, you go out on the street corner and you just beat the fire out of them. I was in Boston one time preaching at a church and there was a young guy up there who was a street preacher, later went on to be a missionary. And we're driving from one place to another in his car. And we, in Boston, downtown Boston. And it's about a 20 minute ride. And he's, he's got these big stickers all over his car, you know, about the King James Bible and all this stuff, you know. And so we're down there and we're talking and he says, well, he says, time to do a little preaching. <laughs> so he picks up, he's got a CB in his car. He picks up the microphone, turns it on PA. And there's some women walking across the street at the light. They weren't, and I don't care if they were, they weren't, they weren't looked like they were out on the town. They were just nice ladies walking across the street. He says, God knows where you're going tonight. He starts to say some really disparaging things to them. There's a guy walking down the block. Nice guy. Looks like he was a businessman. And he says, Sir, the eternal hell fires are on your heels. God knows where you're going tonight and knows every thought in your heart. Which is all true. I don't argue that it isn't true. I'm just saying, you're never going to win them that way. And then he says, after about 15 minutes, and I'm shrieking down in the car. I'm getting as low as I can. Then he hands the mic to me and says, here, brother, you go ahead and have a hand at it. I took it and said, parts, line one, and I hung it up. (laughs) 
No way. Now, he had truth. And he was a nice kid. He had truth. He had absolutely no grace. He was a hardliner who, who turned more people off in his life. And he went, to, he went to Africa to be a missionary. And I can see that really working in Africa. Except you'd have to have your loudspeaker on an ox cart. <laughs> and so you find that most churches fall into two categories. You have those that have grace, that have truth, but they have no grace. Then you find some that have grace, but they have no truth. That's like our little billboard sign. And you find families the same way. Every once in a while you'll find a church or a pastor who's got a good balance. Not many left, but there's a few out there. A great balance in a grace and truth. Truth is, is hard line. Truth is dogmatic. Grace is your ability to present that truth without hurting somebody. But these guys are all mad at God as far as I'm concerned. And they're out, to, they're out to hurt people. They want to show the world, I'm standing for the truth. Now you're a village idiot looking for a city to live in. Until I met Mark back with me, and, and I was never interested in it. But you do a good job for us, and you head up our, our street preaching. And I encourage you, moms and dads, your kids get a little older, let them go down. And with families and parenting, it takes the same good balance between grace and truth. Truth to hold them accountable. But grace is the ability to use that truth in not hurting them. Truth will be hard line. It will be black and white. Truth should be, but truth should be administered with four areas that make truth workable in a person's life. And this is why uh, we don't, I don't knock on doors. I thought that was always pretty worthless. It may have worked at one time, but most of the guys that do that today or go out on visitation at night or those things, most of the guys that do that, uh, that's just because they, they don't know any better and that's their mindset. And, they don't, and their church reflects it. You know, three chickens and a duck on Sunday morning. Uh, you know, you, want, you cannot, in the world we live in today, you cannot reach people for Christ without investing your life in them. You just can't do it. If you think you can just go to a door and say, Hi, sir, you need to just, Jesus Christ, your own personal Savior, you're going to have to go, Oh, praise Jesus, I was standing on a roof three nights ago, and a vision came down that an idiot was going to come to my door, and here you are. Let me tell you the four things you've got to have when you have the truth and you want to administer it through grace. Are you with me here? I'll tell you the first one. You've got to have affection. When you have your child and your child is, is, is in your family and you've got to drop the hammer of truth on them, you minister that truth through the grace of your affection for them. They always know that uh, you love them about everything else in life. The second thing that you have to convey into their world is availability. You may have to administer the hard line of black and white truth, but you're going to administer it through the concept of grace that you know that, that you're always going to be there for them. That there's not a time in their life that you're not going to be in their presence to keep them accountable, but yes, but also to show them the affection that you love them. The third thing you got to do when you administer the hard line of truth, you got to minister through the grace of appreciation. 
You've got to let them know how important they are to your family. You've got to say things like, you know what? We wouldn't be a family without you. We're not complete without you. I, I know you don't understand why I've got to be so hard on you with truth, but the reason is is because you're so important to us as a family. And I, I, I'm not going to allow you to, to, to step outside of, of the laws of God that this family are set for, not because I'm being hard-lined, but because I love you so much. You were so important to us. You're everything that we ever wanted. You're our miracle child. You're our miracle children. You're what God gave us. God blessed us. Like he brought down the, the manna from heaven. He brought down you into our family. And you are important to us. We love you. We're here for you. We appreciate you. And then the fourth thing, you may have to put the hammer of truth in their life, but you have to put it through the grace of acceptance. I don't like what you did, but I'm going to accept you the way you are. And I want to help you get better. Now, see, the hard line of truth wasn't squelched at all. Because truth is vital. It's a dogmatic thing you have to have in a church. And I said, let me stop here. You realize, and maybe you pick it up. You know, this is how I built my church. And we go out to eat someplace after volleyball, after, after whatever. And, uh, you know, I'll get there first, eat real quick. And, I'm, and I always tell Barb, I'm on the clock. She says, go ahead, you're on the clock. You know what I do? I walk around to the tables where you're sitting and I tell every one of you how important you are. I tell every one of you how much I love you. I tell every one of you how vital I couldn't do what I do without you. And you know what? I'm not just doing it because I'm thinking, oh, I'm just going to go. I believe that. I believe it just like every parent believes it with their kids. And I believe that every parent, even a, maybe a parent that doesn't do it, I believe they believe these things. I believe your problem is you don't understand the process to do it. And sometimes it's hard for a parent. It's very hard for a pastor to tell his congregation. Oh, he'll say in a general way, I love you. No, no. It's something else to look you in the eye and say, I really love you. I really appreciate what you do for me. You're everything I can want. I love everything you do for me. I really love <laughs> you're everything. We wouldn't have a, what we have here without you. You guys are vital to me. You guys. Man, I've watched you grow, and i watched you, what God has done with you, and I listened to your priest down at the mission. We wouldn't be what we have without you. And you, you got your gun on this morning? Good. Somebody comes in there, you protect me. You jump in front of me, take the hits, and throw me your gun. That's how you build a family. That's how you build a church. You don't build a church by getting up there and tell you what's wrong with you. You know why I don't have to do that? I just preach the word of God. You already know what's wrong with you. It's not under any illusion anybody's life today what your problems are. Me pointing them out to you, as good as that may be, the Holy Spirit of God is always better. Amen. And I found, the Bible says, love turned away wrath. I found that when you legitimately love somebody and don't get into all the downside of things and beat them up all the time. Now, now I'll preach some hard messages from here. You bet I will. And sometimes I, I, I was at a truck stop one time. And, uh, you know, and I was just a kid and, uh, and I never forgot this. And we were, we, we were going someplace and we stopped at a truck stop and there was a big old truck there and a truck got, guy got out, truck driver guy. And, uh, he, you know, he pulled out from behind the seat, a big metal pipe and he walked around on every one of those tires 
and he beat the tires. Every one of them. And I, I was just a little kid, and, I, I was, and he said, hi, Sonny, how are you? And he, I said, well, I'm fine, how are you? And I said, man, that's a nice truck. And he says, well, thank you. I said, can I ask you a question? I said, why are you beating the tires? He says, oh, there's, I said, there's something wrong with your tires? He says, oh, no, no, there's nothing wrong with my tires. He says, I beat the tires to make sure that there's no problem with the tires, that they're staying inflated. And I never forgot that. And years later when I got preaching, you know, sometimes on Sunday morning, you just got to beat the tires. You just got to beat the tires. I don't think there's nothing, anything wrong. I just want to see if you're all holding air. <laughs> Old Mel used to tell a story about this woman in this church. Every time the pastor would give an invitation, the woman would come down and she'd say, Oh God, oh God, fill me. Oh God, fill me. And the preacher go on with it. Next sermon, come down the aisle. Oh God, fill me. She did this every service. Finally, the preacher got so fed up with it, he comes down and she says, Oh, God, fill me. The preacher said, Oh, God, fix the leak. <laughs> you administer truth. But you administer truth through affection, through your availability, through your appreciation of who they are. And your acceptance of who they are. Hey, I'd like, I'd like you to be better than you are. I've met people in my church, in my life, in my ministry that I, that I thought could be a lot better than they are. But I realized that over the years that my job is not to, not to necessarily beat you up for not where you're at. But do my job to help you get where God wants you to be. Now maybe you won't do it. But you know what? It doesn't matter. There's no skin off my nose. Uh, it ain't going to affect my life any. I'm here to help you. I'm here to be here for you. I'm here to help you get better with what God wants to be. If you want to stay in that mindset, that's okay. I still love you. I'll still be your friend. I don't ever look at anybody and think, well, I don't like that person because they don't do what's right. No, if I don't like you, it would be for another reason. It won't be for that one. Because I realize that you have to accept people where they're at and then try to make them better. And until you're willing to accept somebody where they're at, you'll never make them better. And that's true of your kids. That's true of your kids. Okay, now I want to I, I, I talk to you about, I want to talk about six parents here real quick. Uh, through a balance of truth and grace in your life. Truth being the sharp edges Grace being the rounding and polishing of the edges by grace. And then dealing with the families for 45 plus years, I've cataloged these. And allow me to do this. Now, I want to say that, that uh, uh, they overlap here a little bit. And uh, they overlap in a thing where uh, some, sometimes you'll see multiple things here. But fundamentally, as you divide them out, here are the six types of parents you have. First one is what I call an autocratic parent. And their style of panning will be very hard line. My way or the highway, so to speak. You find a lot of fathers like this that never tell their kids they love them. They're always tough on them. Johnny Cash wrote a song years ago about a boy named Sue. Yeah, his dad named him Sue because he knew life was going to be tough and the kid would have to fight over that name all of his life and would make him strong. That's not the way to handle it. And then it's kind of autocratic parenting. There's no, there's no grace involved. It's almost like the kids are under the Old Testament law. 
And it can be very hard line without any Bible, or it can be very hard line within churches within the Bible. Totally out of balance. Pounding in truth without any grace. And these parents in the churches can be very legalistic. You know, I mean, they set up a complete uh, unbiblical set of rules that has nothing to do with anything in the Bible because they want to pretend they're spiritual. And they're idiots. They really are. No TV. No movie night. No music outside the church. No jeans or slacks for the women. Uh, no shorts. I mean, uh, I know churches where uh, when the kids went to camp in the summertime and the girls wanted to play softball, uh, they, had, they, 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 you know, they had to wear, uh, you know, you wear shorts to play softball, they had to wear pants underneath them. I mean, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just ludicrous. I mean, uh, it's a thing where, uh, or they wouldn't let them wear shorts or, or they make them wear culottes, whatever culottes are. <laughs> and I never understood that. Did you ever see somebody slide into home base wearing culottes? Come on. But then, no sliding either. In some churches, I've seen in the past where, like this, all the men are on one side and all the women are on the other. No, once you get together. So you get together afterwards. I mean, it doesn't work. Uh, churches where if you've been divorced, your life is over. Go kill yourself. I've known churches that they had special study school classes for divorced people because they didn't want them to taint the congregation. And then they watch them, cameras, security cameras. Because the moment you start to be friendly with somebody and you've been divorced, but now you have to stay single. You know, I always thought it's easy for a pastor who's married to put that burden on somebody else. Now, I realize when you get a divorce, there's some things you've got to work through, and I understand. But if you think you've got to stay single the rest of your life because you were divorced, now maybe you should because you don't know how to handle a marriage, but I'm saying from the Bible standpoint, come on. Come on. But that's, that's the rules, you see. I had a church one time, and the guy says, well, I'm divorced. What can I do? Can I be a deacon? No. Can I be a Sunday school teacher? Uh-uh. Uh, can, I, can I disciple somebody? Nope, nope, can't do that. What can I do? You can tithe. <laughs> now, in this, when your kids hit 17 or 18, they're gone. They slingshot. You, you have been such a prison to them that a boyfriend or a girlfriend throws them a hacksaw. And they bust out of jail. They want to get away from that lifestyle absolutely unbelievably. The autocratic parent. Then you have what I call the permissive parents. Now these type of parents have no rules of anything. The family's not based on any truth. The parents are so afraid that they will lose the love of their child that they allow everything uh, in their life and won't discipline them at all. Certainly no spanking. Many times the parent follows the worldly child psychology or some book that they read that is so off the wall that it's unbelievable. And But a child at the time is 13, 14, and 15, it's obvious that who's in control of the family. It isn't the parents. These kids will grow up and use church and God just like they'll use the parents and never see any real value in anything spiritual. Because they never had any discipline. They never had any structure. The parents lose complete control at this level, and it's a disaster. The key thing to look for in forms of this parenting, and I've cataloged this over the years, and I'll just tell you, weak fathers, strong mothers. Role reversal. 
I'd say that probably 80 to 85% of the time down through my, my ministry of some 40-some years, that every time somebody got their nose bent on a joint and left the church over something that was stupid, it was usually because the father was weak and the woman was strong. I've said to the guys before, what's going on? Why didn't you come and we work this thing out? Well, my wife didn't want me to. Okay. <laughs> Who's in charge here? I am telling you. When you get a role reversal where the man is supposed to be in charge and a woman takes charge, and he's like a little chihuahua out in the yard and wanting to go potty, <laughs> you're in trouble. Weak fathers will always be a problem in the family. I mean, it just will. I mean, I'm sorry. It just is. God didn't design it that way. God designed you to lead your family. Now, I said that. If you're here and you feel like you can't lead your family, come and talk to me. I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll give you a whip, a chair, and a gun. We'll get it all into place. I'll show you what to do. Being a, being a, many, and many dads don't do it because they're afraid to do it. They're afraid they'll fail. I, it's okay. I'll help you. I'll help you. We'll, we'll work it out. There's no reason not for you to be the spiritual leader of your home unless you just don't want to be. Some guys like their wives telling them what to do. I've gotten used to it. I love it. <laughs> then the third type of parent is neglectful parents. Now, in this form of style of parenting, the parent have no rules whatsoever. And uh, they allow the kids just to run wild. Now, I just say this because I'm just going to say it. When you grow your church up, you need to teach your kids that this church is not a playground. Amen. They're running all over the place, climbing on everything. Amen. I mean, that's no Bible, no rules, no accountability, no structure. Parents, I'm moving through this as fast as I can. Parents basically allowing their kids to figure it out for themselves on their own. Hey, kid, you figure it out. You do it. And parents like this fall into two categories in the Bible that are great studies. One of them is Lot in Genesis 17, 18, and 19. And the other one is a guy in Judges chapter 11 named Jephthah. Lot was a, Lot was a picture of, of a father that was out of church, living in the world. Jephthah is a picture of a father who was in church and living in the world. And at the end result, both their kids get destroyed. Lot, is such a, Lot has a, such a terrible value system that when he finally goes to his kids to tell them God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says that they laughed at him like one that mocked. They thought, Dad, you're the last person on the planet that I ever thought would get a message from God. And yet the Bible says that he's a picture of a saved man, righteous Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the world. Jephthah, on the other hand, he's in church. He's a spiritual leader. He just shoots his mouth off because he didn't know his Bible. And he winds up Killing his own daughter. Then the fourth type of parenting you have, I call helicopter parents. They're the type of parents who will always basically throw their child a lifeline whatever situation he gets himself into. Hovering over them like a rescue helicopter. Throwing them a lifeline, life vest in every bad situation the child gets into. Completely taking from that child personal responsibility and personal accountability. Mom and dad always bailing them out. Always making excuses for them. Taking God completely out of the equation. Child gets drunk. 
gets a DWI, gets pulled over by the cops, they get him the best lawyer they can to get him out of it. He gets a second DWI. I have had, I've seen fathers that their kid got four or five DWIs that they, that, uh, and they still just bailing them out. Kid ain't got a dime to pay for anything, and, and dad, mom and dad just keep bailing them out, bailing them out, bailing them out. You know where those kids are today? The one in particular I have in mind, you know where they are today? He's a rank drunk who lives in a barn who couldn't put two nickels together, all because somebody enabled him and wouldn't hold him accountable. Their child gets into drugs. Instead of letting the course deal with them and God deal with them, shoplifting. Walmart in Raytown is the shoplifting capital of the world. <laughs> the kids steal so much stuff in there that I've been able to steal stuff myself and they're looking for them and not seeing me. You can never deny your children the learning experience of God in their life dealing with them. God many times will have a course of action that they have to go through some very hard things for them to learn the lessons. And parents are always there bailing them out, providing a place for them to stay instead of letting them go through the system and let God bring it full circle. And the motive is it? Oh, I love my child. Oh, I love my child. No, according to the Bible, you hate your child. Because true love is truth. A ministering truth through grace. And all you do is enable them to get deeper into sin. And down the line, when they kill some kid, or they molest some child, or they do this, or they do that, or they sell drugs and somebody else dies from it, Ultimately, it's going to be your responsibility because you're the one who never held the line with them. My philosophy is don't put the kids in jail. Put the parents in jail. Put the enablers in jail. Truth, your personal accountability and responsibility for your actions, and you don't intervene to make it better for them. If they're God's child, let God bring it to the ending and then see what he does. Now, the fifth type of parents. These are the parents who, who live in denial. They got a big, nice house right there on the River Nile in Egypt. And they live in denial. This form of parent, their kids can do no wrong. And four or five usually go together. And every issue the child has now will be somebody else's fault. Their child is never at fault. No personal responsibility in anything. It's always the other kid's fault or the bad influences that got into their child. I've had parents tell me, well, my son or my, ch- my daughter, they don't go to church anymore because they had a bad experience one time at church. Really? Well, they don't, you know, they don't care about spiritual things anymore because some Christian friends were really mean to them. Really? I'm going to tell you something. Other Christians don't make your children good or bad. You do. There may be things, listen just to me, there may be things that happen in your child's life that they had no control over. And they are not responsible for some bad things that happen in the world, in church, with other Christians. 
But I'm going to tell you something. I don't know what you've been teaching them. I don't know where you've been. Oh, I do. You were down on your big house on denial. You may be not responsible for some things that happen in your life, but your child needs to understand they are responsible how they deal with it. Respond, react. And we lose those things. And I just got to ask you this, if that may be true, that who's responsible for their overall value system that allowed them to choose people like that or places like that in the first place? Families with this mindset in parenting will always lose their kids to the world. Because you are the greatest distraction and you, the parent, are the greatest enabler because you will not hold that child accountable and you want to go through life blaming every problem they have on somebody else. And the kid, like the parents who trained them, will go through life blaming all the issues that they face now on everybody else. It'll always be the boss where I worked. They'll get into a marriage and they'll get a divorce. It was my ex. It'll always be somebody else's fault. Why? Because you, as a parent in denial, never held them accountable with grace and truth. The truth of the fact that it's your fault, you have to own it, but I'll go through grace, show you how they will work it together. And then the sixth one will be the well-balanced parent. Now, these are few and far between in the Christian life. Thank God we got a bunch of them here. But moms and dads have so much drama in their own lives that they can never do what needs to be done with the child. And, uh, you know, mom and dad's life have been a problem. I told you a couple of weeks ago, it's when these childs are in their most formable times is when most people get their divorces. And then a kid is ripped apart. The thing that, that God intended to be a safe, wholesome, warm atmosphere of development is thrown into chaos. And then we wonder why the kids have problems. I'll tell you why. Because the kids will always suffer when we make bad choices. And most divorces take place when the child is at this most valuable, vulnerable, tenable time. And, uh, you know, this is where the child needs all the positive reinforcement that they can get. Through the discipline, you're reinforcing. And through, the, and through the truth and grace, you're reinforcing some things. You're reinforcing. I'm not going to allow you to live this way. But you're also reinforcing because you're so important. You're so valuable. And I love you. And because I love you, truth has to be the center of our home. Now this parent number six here, have a, they have a plan. They, they, and they, have, uh, they provide a vision for the child and their family, short-term and long-term. Uh, they work through the five stages of development. They see and understand the tremendous responsibility to their children. They understand, as Psalms 127 says, that our kids are on loan to us, that we are the stewards of them, that they're God's heritage and the, their fruit is His reward. They are not only guardians of their physical bodies and protect people from hurting them, but they understand that they are the guardians of their spiritual soul. And most parents will guard their kid's body, but they'll leave the soul to the devil in the world out there. They understand that their child is the most valuable asset that they have. And they let the child know that. They communicate that through those four things of acceptance and availability and affection. That home that that child has to be the safest place on this planet that they never want to leave. 
And in fact, most of them can't wait to get out. And they walk through their, their, their child through every scenario. Dad leading the way, not mom. Dad leading the way. Mom backing up support, following through with it. Dad leading the way. They work, they work to ensure that nobody on this planet will have more say or more influence or more credibility with their child than they do. That when anybody says something, that kid will always look at dad and say, is that true? There's never a chance that they say, well, my old man don't know anything. Yeah, I'm with you. This kind of family doesn't just happen by accident. It's one of truth. It's one of love. It's one of security, one of warmth, one of trust. Generated by mom and dad's commitment to the things of God, the truth of God first, and then the grace to be able to administer that truth that never hurts their child. This kind of family doesn't just happen. It takes a lot of work, a lot of personal discipline, a lot of personal denial, a lot of personal dedication, and not losing sight of the goal and the vision that God has for you as the parent, your family, and your children. And it's all based and starts with the parent and their own personal accountability and responsibility to the things of God. Because we all have to deal with grace and truth in our own lives. We all have the greatest example of what we're supposed to give to our kids because God's word is truth. And the truth of the matter is, in all of our lives, it's 1235, going to be done in about 30 seconds, but up to this point, just a short day, you know what is true? God should have killed all of us. Every one of us. Every one of us. The moment you pulled out of your driveway and got on 350 or the freeway and that guy pulled out in front of you and you said, praise the Lord. God should have killed you. But you know why he didn't? We violate truth all the time. You know why he doesn't do anything and kill us? Because he ministers it through grace. He'll bring you to the church, bring you to the Bible, bring you through the Holy Spirit of God and show you those four things that God administers truth through in your life. And when I talk about loving God, and that's a general concept that everybody would say, yeah, I love God, but I'm talking about really loving God. You know what, what makes you really love God? When you understand the truth of His Word and how you are accountable to it and what should happen to us because we violate that truth, what really makes you love Him is the fact that the four aspects of grace that He puts in our life to administer that truth. He loves us that much. How do you not love somebody that loves you that way? I'm going to say it again. How do you not love somebody that loves you that way? And for you as parents, your child will love you for loving them that way.